Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCS Ed. I am your host, as ever, Gregory Acosta, Colorectal Registrar up north in Edinburgh. And with me, a good friend and co-host, Ceci, how are you? I am doing really well. Today is a continuation of our vascular series, or actually the start of a vascular series. You had a bit of a teaser last week. And with us today as a second co-host, he's gone from being a guest to a host. Paddy, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Good. So you enjoyed the last episode so much, you've come to stay, have you? Stay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We kind of made him. A good vibe, so um, let's keep it going, hey? The only thing I would say is please be kind to the gentlemen that are about to join us on the episode today. We've got two vascular registrars who are, we've got a pretty impressive research portfolio, but we'll come to that shortly. Join us, Andrew Nickinson and John Houghton. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well. I'm very pleased that um, uh, Andrew Andrew's running joke is, is, uh, is Every time I go to a conference, no one pronounces my name properly. So thank you very much for... Yeah. Uh, for yeah, did I manage? You did, yes. <laughs> oh, excellent. I didn't practice just before this at all. Yes, uh, you did. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. So you may or may not have, have uh, listened to our podcast before, but what we try to do is get to know the individuals behind the message. And, you know, I am, as a non-vascular trainee, I'm interested to hear what you've got to talk about and some of the good work you've been doing. But before that, let's get to know you a bit, uh, a little bit better. So, Andrew, you relate to the podcast. Let's start with you. Uh, <laughs> who is Andrew Nickinson? So, I am a vascular ST5 in the Wessex and Thames Valley Deanery. I have just finished two and a half years of out of programme for research in Leicester, in the University of Leicester, working with John and Professor Sayers and Rob Davis. And uh, I'm interested in lower limb arterial disease, and that's kind of where I think my career is going to go. You you make it sound as though that is a subspecialty of vascular surgery, one of many. Is that is that, is that actually a subspecialty now? Well, I wouldn't say it's a subspecialty, but it's sort of an interest area okay. that, that I have. Yeah, we do some quick fire questions, uh, and I'll, I'll pick up on your your Wessex allegiance just now, but we'll come to you. We'll come back to you shortly. John, who is, who's John Houghton? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm also a vascular specialist trainee. Um, I'm still on UPA. So I suppose I'm between SD4 and SD5 and I'm, I'm in the East Midlands rotation. So I currently, uh, working in Leicester was until very recently working with Andrew, uh, and uh, yeah, live in Leicestershire. Uh, so not not anywhere near Wessex. So quick for a bit, John. What's the one thing you dislike about Andrew? Take your time. Oh, take your time. There's, there's quite quite <laughs> quite a lot. Where to start? No pressure. <laughs> We, we, we have some very interesting debates, uh, oh, right. uh previously in the office, um, but now uh-huh. largely on WhatsApp. Um, but it's probably his love for Norwich City. Andrew, currently having a good time with Norwich City. What's the one thing you love the most about John? Oh, John is a brilliant guy. He's, uh, a very loyal friend. And if you needed something done, uh, you could trust John to do it. 
Oh, very nice. Very pleasant between you I both. I think I had the easier uh, question there. You did. <laughs> uh, what's his favourite football team? Uh, John likes, for some reason, Leeds United. Well, so that's I think he Greg, can... where I, I was going to come in. That was my question. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> I've, been, I've been watching John on Twitter. <laughs> See, Paddy, that's the problem. Greg will always steal your shine. Me to it about this Leeds United allegiance. Because <sighs> I, I, I lived in Leeds for 20 years. Right. Through, through the glory days of the, of the 90s. Uh, I'm I'm a Preston North End fan, so um, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah, someone has to be. <laughs> a great team, great team. We had some good battles against Leeds, but I wanted to know why Leeds United. I I grew up in Leeds. I don't sound it anymore. Uh, I went to school in Harrogate, um, uh-huh. um, but yeah. So um, you you Le- you had been living in Leeds during the the David O'Leary era, then? Absolutely, yeah. I, I was a Rhino season ticket holder. I was never a Leeds United season ticket holder, but. Um, yeah, um, been to plenty of games at Elland Road. Um, no, that's interesting because uh, because I'm I'm from across the Pennines originally, so I'm a Red Rose. But the only Yorkshire team I support is the Rhinos. Oh, there you go. I've got and I've got lots of lots of friends in Leeds and uh, and, and uh, David O'Leary playing uh, golf at Alwoodley and uh, places like that. Excellent. We're just going to cut your reminiscing of, of Leeds uh, short there. Andrew, please don't feel left out. <laughs> Andrew, please don't feel left out. No, Norwich. no, I tell you, I mean, I, I have no interest in Leeds football club. So. <laughs> well, evidently not, because your club is still battling through the championship. But, you know, eventually... Promoted, you actually. It. Promoted. Yeah, okay, I apologise. Yeah, at the time of recording, you have been promoted. Welcome to the Big Leeds. I, I really hope you can stay for more than one season this time. But... <laughs> Straight for the jugular, Greg. <laughs> sorry Straight for the jugular. Sorry, sorry, I had to. I had to. Anyway, back to you both. Uh, so, Andre, of all the specialties in the surgical curriculum, you went to a fine medical school, I presume. You graduated, became a foundation doctor, and you thought to yourself, "I want to save lives. I want to save limbs, and I want to deal with stenoses on MRAs and CTAs." Why vascular surgery of everything else you could have done? Why vascular surgery? Well, I didn't actually want to be a vascular surgeon to start with. There we go. Uh, I think that I think I always wanted to do general surgery from sort of the latter good. days of medical school uh, through F1, F2, and I did a CT1 job which was sold as general surgery, um, but actually it was a vascular job in a sort of small unit which was at the time in a DGH, but now it's been moved. Um, and I just had some very inspirational people there who got me interested in it. So I think like many people, you have inspirational people that, uh, that, that get you into the specialty. And I just loved the, the operating and the suturing and doing the anastomosis. And that's what got me got me into it. Similarly, I, I was going to be an oncologist once upon a time, actually. And then did medicine, didn't like it, did surgery, loved it. And then met some inspiring people, became enthusiastic for surgery, and, and here I am. As Ceci would say, God's gift to colorectal surgery. Uh, John, why why vascular surgery? I, I, very similar to Andrew, I think. Um, I think like like most most vascular trainees and vascular surgeons that I've met, most of us uh, didn't envisage uh, doing vascular surgery straight out of medical school. Um, I did a vascular F1 job and really didn't like it. And I think if you'd have told me then that I was going to end up being a vascular surgeon, I, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, but I did a, I did a, a job in Bristol in Southmead Hospital um, and equally had some inspirational bosses, um, good mentors um, who took an interest in me, trained me and um, 
yeah, it's their fault. Here I am now. Credit to the specialty, as I'm sure we'll hear uh, shortly. So two more questions for you both. Same question. Please be uh, different in your answers. John, you're going to go first here. What is your favorite vein of the human body? That is a very tricky question. And he had a great answer, actually. Probably the long saphenous vein. Hey, there we go. (laughs) The right answer. (laughs) And why, John? Uh, because it's a brilliant conduit to do a fanpop bypass. That's almost the same answer that Paddy gave. Did did they give you an initiation (laughs) book when you joined the specialty? It's also the one curative operation that they came up with in in our pre-meet. Excellent. Uh, Andrew, in a situation where the the long staff has already been harvested by somebody else on both sides before you where you give me a cheeky answer. What other vein would you go to as your favourite vein? And if you can't think of one, then tell me your favourite artery. I suppose you could, you could splice together some cephalic vein. I suppose after the long saphenous vein, there's not like a favourite. It's not like a, it's not like Needs United. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... Um, touché, touché. Yeah, the Norwich City of veins is obviously the long saphenous. And, uh... <laughs> of, course it is. of course it is. Well, you have the last word with that, so we'll have to accept that. Well done. Final question. On, on, on the last episode, we heard about some love of music from some, and... We play this hypothetical game where you now had your own band of vascular brothers and sisters. What would the name of your team vascular band be? Uh, I think it would be uh, similar to a Carly Simon song, You're So Vain. Hey, I like that. You know, if I if I can do this on, on the editing, I will give you a clap uh, right now <laughs> after that answer. Well done. That, that was really good. John, no pressure. Now, the Norwich City fan has come on this podcast and has thrown down the gauntlet. What would your jazz band be called? Jazz band? I don't think it'd be a jazz band. I think it'd probably <laughs> be a thrash metal band, and I'd probably call it Mycotic Aneurysm. Okay. <laughs> Final Paddy, you are the resident vascular surgeon. Be the judge. Both have Ooh. given us some really good names for their bands. Which who who would be the winner here? Norwich City or Leeds United? Uh, I'm gonna just sit on the fence, I'm afraid. They oh, were both come off it. both come equally good. There's never been a vascular surgeon sit on the fence. No, no, ever. no. no. Uh, e- equally good. I thought they were both very original, very quick. Because I had to wait. You had to wait half an hour for me, <laughs> me last time to think of one. So, uh, fifty-six minutes actually. So, so well he, done. I, I can't, I can't really criticise that. that. That was very good. Well done, chaps. That was that was pretty good. It, it was it was amazing. A real sort of drop the mic moment and walk away. Very cool. Um, so we've learned a bit more about you, including um, your football affiliations of which I know absolutely nothing about but um, kudos to you you seem like you really enjoy what you do Uh, let's get into a bit about you know your clinical day-to-day so um, both you guys are quite um, involved in the vascular research world and I want to come to you Andrew first Um, through Paddy we we um, learned about this whole concept of uh, VALS clinic and in your time in Leicester, um, you were involved in the working of one. So why don't you let us know a little bit about the Leicester Vals Clinic, and then we'll come to John to talk a little bit about the research background and the group you were part of. Yeah, so the Leicester Vals Clinic is a rapid access vascular limb salvage clinic. 
um, which was set up in February of 2018. And it, it sort of stems from this idea which came from America of some sort of limb salvage services, essentially, which is, well, it was initially designed as sort of seven key areas that a service should be able to do to manage diabetic feet. Um, but it's sort of grown since then. And the idea behind the Vows Clinic is to try and assess patients with potential chronic limb threatening ischemia, um, get all of their imaging and assessment done as quickly as possible, and then direct them through a sort of a, a, a proper protocol for revascularization. Uh, and the aim is to assess and actually offer and treat patients within 14 days of referral. So it, it sort of it's worked with the Vascular Society's PADQIF, the Peripheral Arterial Disease Quality Improvement Framework. But the essence, the essence is to try and treat people as quickly as possible. And it's a great clinic. It's run by three specialist nurses and they sort of run it completely, really. So they take referrals, they assess people. We aim to see them within 24, 48 hours. Yeah. Um, people get duplex ultrasound and get CT scans the same day. They're discussed in a sort of daily MDT and, you know, a patient can come in at nine o'clock and then by three in the afternoon, they have a date for an angioplasty and a plan. And, and that sort of, it's a simple concept and there are other specialties in, you know, medicine and surgery have done sort of similar things, but yeah. it's a sort of novel thing for patients with chronic limb threatening ischemia. And you know, the, the hope and the evidence we've seen so far is that it probably does improve outcomes for patients. Oh, fantastic. Well, we won't give too much away because we're going to talk about some of the research that you've done. But um, that sounds fantastic. It reminds me very much of the breast services that are very well established where you can walk in and, you know, see a clinician, see a radiologist, um, have samples taken for pathology. And it's just that one stop service. But just um, one little question. It does sound like a humongous operation. You've mentioned specialist nurses, but are there any other professionals that you guys work with um, and do you mean you need a few radiologists on board and what other sorts of people do you get involved in this clinic yeah so i mean it's a it's a big team effort and um you know the day-to-day running as i say is by the vascular specialist nurses you've got vascular registrars vascular consultants you've then got you know who maybe not directly in the clinic but are a key part of the services are the interventional radiologists you've got the ward staff you've got the Leicester diabetic foot clinic who run who actually aren't based in the same hospital because Leicester's spread over three sites but very closely aligned to it Um, and so patients can be referred seamlessly between and also I think that's really good about the the clinic is the research as well I know we're going to come on to that but there's a lot of sort of research activity and it's a really fruitful uh, research pool essentially so there's a number of different specialties face to face on the cold face it's mainly vascular nurses and vascular doctors but there's a huge number of people behind the scenes it sounds like a simple concept in terms of trying to get people in as quickly as possible but behind all that must have been a massive operational exercise because you've got to bring I know how difficult it is to get some of these scans on the same day, even when they're inpatients. But how did you manage to corral your radiology department to essentially save you slots through the day? That, That in itself is an achievement, but also getting everybody else on board and having daily MDTs, that's... You know, you've sort of talked about it as though it was just something straightforward, but, you know, we all know that is very, very, very difficult to do. Yeah, I mean... I mean, luckily, I didn't have to organise 
<laughs> so that was the sort of expertise of Professor Rob Zares and uh, Robert Davis in, in Leicester. Um, but, you know, behind the scenes is uh, an excellent uh, vascular sciences unit. Um, there was money that was given as a charitable donation, which helped fund an extra vascular scientist who could sit down in the clinic the clinic runs in the morning so there would always be a vascular scientist there to get a duplex scan within five minutes of assessment um and you know, from a sort of international radiology point of view the idea is we, we're sort of moving patients around so normally these patients would be on the ward you know sitting on the ward doing not very much and what we're doing is using those slots instead to try and divert those patients to a more ambulatory pathway but as I, said, I wasn't I can't take credit for setting up this service um, and I think it was an awful lot of work to do um, but I think everyone buys into it because we realize that that sort of thing works rather than sort of keeping patients on the ward and sitting in beds doing nothing. It's a great example of optimizing services to get patient outcomes and um, I'm sure we've all been there um, at the mercy of some sort of technical or managerial glitch that prevents you from doing what you want to do. So this is fantastic. Now, you mentioned um, the huge potential for research. Um, Can I come to you, John? As um, we may have mentioned before on the podcast, you guys were part of the George Davis Research Group. So what what is that? Who is George Davis and how how does it all work? So George Davis is a uh, a retailer, uh, entrepreneur, um, has had multiple, um, uh, multiple Uh, retail ventures over the years so george from asda is george davis oh Um, my goodness uh, peruna no way just name dropping just like (laughs) oh yeah i I just know george from asda just randomly have you guys met him yes yeah yeah yeah. he he started off um started off was was big involved in next and setting up next and that's where the leicester link comes from because um next head offices are in uh, in leicester um and so that's where his involvement in Leicester City and his closeness to the hospital um, started. But tell us how this, um, because obviously what I hear is there's a huge potential um, for funding there. So tell us about some of the work that you've been able to do through this collaboration. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's been a, he's been a very generous philanthropist and has um, donated to the Vascular Society and the Circulation Foundation previously as well. Um, uh, and um he gave a, a, a joint donation to University of Leicester um, and um, University Hospitals of Leicester to kind of jointly set up the Vals Clinic um, and also to set up um, the research group, which is led by uh, Professor Rob Sayers, um, who's our, our boss and supervisor. Um, and we've got uh, a number of people within our team. So we've got, um, uh, well, Andrew's just left. We've got another clinical research fellow who's a vascular registrar. Um, we've got a a physiotherapist, research physiotherapist, um, uh, exercise physiologist, a research student, um, and uh, we've got another research student going to be uh, joining us, another vascular registrar joining us fairly soon. Um, so yeah, so we've got a reasonable team. There's there's some other people involved as well, um, and uh, and together we, you know, we're we're um, doing research kind of more widely on chronic limb threatening ischemia so looking at various aspects of uh, the management of patients with uh, chronic limb threatening ischemia. I know there's been quite a few papers and things um, published around what you've done and Mm. um, we're going to be hearing about that in a minute. Um, I'm just going to ask one last little question and then I'm going to leave you to the mercy of Paddy. How 
difficult was it to get involved in the actual research group? Was there a competitive application process or was it quite straightforward, um, just expressing your interests and then getting on board? Uh, there, there was an application process like there are for most jobs. I think I was quite fortunate because I'm a local trainee in the East Midlands and um, I, I was looking to do a period out of research, uh, out of programme for research. Um, and uh, like Andrew, I'm also interested clinically in um, lower limb arterial disease um, and chronic limb threatening ischemia. And so um, I was just very, very fortunate that the, the opportunity came up for a fully funded research period. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in deanery, um, I didn't have to move home. Um, family didn't have to move anywhere. So, yeah, I, I count myself very, very fortunate um, to have the opportunity. Um, uh, and yeah, yeah, met, met Prof Sayers before I applied and, and it all went fairly smoothly. Brilliant, guys. I mean, that's, that's a, a fascinating insight to begin with. And, and it is a good unit and you've got some good guys. There. You've got some good su- supervisors. And we, we're just going to gently just try and tease some of the work that you've done and allow you to sort of showcase that really uh, a little bit and and you know I'm interested in it as you know I've got interest in the things that you guys have been doing um, published a bit of stuff around that as well it, it seems from the outside and correct me if I'm wrong guys here that, that Andrew you sort of looked at the pathway of the Valser of the Vals clinic and, and John you're looking at other factors that, that that affect outcomes in patients with critical limb, limb ischemia is, is that roughly how it was divvied up or is that how yeah. it fell or um so just briefly then andrew if i come to you first what 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 are the sort of the the headline results to come out of this the, the work that you've done why why should other units uh invest in a in a similar clinic from the point of view of results or, you know. i think sort of three headlines i would say from my research i think number one is we've shown that time is probably tissue when it comes to chronic limb threatening ischemia and that the the longer you wait the more likely it is that the patients will have poorer outcomes although the the evidence surrounding that is is quite weak um i would say Number two is that delays happen for a variety of reasons. So delays to referral, delays to recognition, referral barriers to getting people into hospital. There are a whole number of them. Um, But one of the things that we can do as vascular surgeons is to try and make it as easy as possible to get people in. So, you know, not putting up barriers to referral from GPs or other community providers. Um, and you know, point three was that a, a, a VALS clinic or a specialist clinic like that, where you try and get people in in a rapid access manner, can potentially reduce the rate of amputation um, for patients. I mean, we, we saw that the rate of amputation for people in, in the VALS clinic dropped from 20 down to 10%. So it, it's not perfect uh, and there's still a long way to go. But I, I think you know the the sort of headline that i would take from it is that these clinics and these sort of services and front loading these services and trying to get people in as quickly as possible and as seamlessly as possible and get them to treatment early does bear fruit do do you think that there is still you've still got more mileage in that to reduce your amputation rates i mean how how low do you think can you can you get what's 
you'll never get a hundred percent will you? What I mean have you got another five percent to go, another eight percent to go? That, that that's difficult because I think something that John and I have, have discussed a lot is that and you see a lot on Twitter people sort of talking about how you know amputation's always completely bad. And I think there there is gonna be there will be a level where you say, look, it, it is a bad disease. There are some patients with it for whom amputation is either the, the only realistic option or actually maybe the best option for the patients. So it's difficult to say how much further it will go. I think the data that I've quoted, the, the reduction in amputation rate was from the first year. Mm. I think COVID may mess things up a little bit, but I think there will be more streamlining that the clinic can do. We can get more people in. So I think the the, the amputation rate will hopefully fall, but I think realistically 10% quite good compared yeah, to no 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 absolutely um we may come on to outcomes outcomes in in a minute so with when your service is opened up what's your hit rate what what's your how many of the patients that are coming through actually have critical limb ischemia so we, um and and how broad a, a an inclusion criteria do you have so that you don't miss any i mean yeah i mean the 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 initial referral criteria are do you have a patient with whom you are concerned has a, an ischemic limb and that that's it and i think the concern was that if you start saying well they have to you know have absent pulses or you have to do an avpis that people won't do it or it slows things down so the the idea was to try and keep it as broad as possible um from the first year data, I think it was about uh, 70%. I can't remember off the top of my head, about a 70% hit rate um, in which you you, you know, 70% of patients will have chronic limb threatening ischemia. You'll have some patients as well who are purely neuropathic, diabetic foot uh, patients who do benefit from having a vascular assessment, although they may not actually go on to treatment. Um, but I think it's about 30% of people come in with other pathologies, which... That feels quite think good, actually, because, you know, I, I think that, that's quite a decent um, hit rate. Have you tried to educate primary care at the same time then to try and help with that? So, Or we, have you just left them be to see quite what the baseline is and... and so when, when the clinic opened, there was uh, a meeting with the sort of local CCG and the, the local group of GPs to promote the clinic um, and to explain what we do. And also to explain that, you know, if you refer everyone up, then it's just going to completely swamp the clinic. Um, but actually, as part of our research team, we have a, a fantastic GP uh, called Bernadetta Bridgewood, who's uh, looking at the understanding of peripheral arterial disease amongst community professionals so gps and other you know healthcare nurse healthcare practitioners district nurses for example um to look at it so i think there was a long way to go with education um we have you know to start to start with we have sort of given out sort of basic education but there was a long way to go with that yeah yeah okay interesting so and just just so that people who are listening who are perhaps thinking about this where does the referral come in? So, 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 how does that pathway actually work to get the patient to the clinic? So, there is a dedicated online portal that people can refer into. They could also just phone up the the clinic office. A lot of patients just phone up, or a lot of GPs just phone up, um, and patients can be booked in. 
There's also calls that go through the on-call vascular registrar as well. So there'll be there may be um, uh, patients who are seen in A and E late at night who don't necessarily need to come in as an inpatient, but we can defer them until tomorrow morning. So there is a there, there, there's a sort of a wide variety of ways in, but usually it's through an online portal which GPs can refer into. And then the clinic, you what they'll be seeing next day or within a couple of days or how many slots do you have? How how does that, do you ever get sort of overloaded a bit so it's a few yeah. days till you get them or? Well, I, I think initially it was four a day. That has increased sort of post-COVID. I think we're sort of up to, correct me if I'm wrong, John, I think it's five at the moment, is it? Um, I mean, they can see more than yeah. that, so they can see eight to ten. Um, but it, it's at the moment post-COVID, it's a combination of uh, a general vascular emergency clinic um, uh, and also um, the VALS clinic. But I think it's about eight VALS patients per day. Yeah, I mean, it has increased. Initially, it was four slots, four days a week, and it has just gone on from there. As as, as our team has become more and more confident with dealing with the patients, with more and more streamlined, more and more slick that patients come in and essentially once you get the referral the patient is phoned up there's a sort of brief history taken and then we book them into a slot but obviously there are some patients that, that still come through the front door into ed and that's there are, stuff. Yeah. And, and and looking at your day-to-day had a um a similar limb loss rate compared to your prehistoric your your historic date date yeah. data didn't they yeah is that because they are why, why is that? Because they should be coming through a similar sort of pathway, shouldn't, shouldn't they? I know I, I asked this question in a meeting before, I think, and that being with, with John, actually. Which okay. A, um, a so, little bit unfair, but it, it, is it, because they're both seeing the same same sort, they're both coming through the same unit. Is it just yeah. that these are presenting a bit later and they're actually being admitted, they've got actually more tissue loss and that sort of thing? So, I mean, I think there is going to be some selection bias. I think that is absolutely natural that, you know, people who come in at three o'clock in the morning probably, you know, probably do have more severe disease. I think in our data, we looked at Rutherford scores and there wasn't any significant difference. But I think if you really drill down, these patients probably are more severe. So there is going to be some selection bias there. And there's there's no way you can really get rid of that in the data. Um, But I think that, there is still a large group of patients who can be managed even with quite severe disease who can wait and can be managed as an outpatient and can come in the next day. Have you got access to an, an analgesic ladder then for, for patients, perhaps if they come through your clinic that, that, that would facilitate patients going home and uh, they say they've got some elements of rest pain, but you didn't think it was bad enough to admit them. Would you leave that to the GP or have you got sort of pharmacists who help you? with that or do you just prescribe it yourself i think it's generally just prescribed yourself but i think that that's a a good potential plan that you could have a a dedicated analgesic ladder policy um to help and don't worry john i will come to you in a minute um, (laughs) the grilling uh, uh, no i I think it's interesting isn't it and and um for for, for units you've obviously got a lot of experience you've got a lot of people there for the units that are setting up what do you think that are trying to get this through with business cases and that sort of stuff, which, which is an issue. Um, what are the core bits? What are the really key bits here? So, if, if you were to if you were to break this all down and be forced to just you know keep the bare minimum that's going to still maintain the benefits, what would that be? So, I think the key thing is to try and get 
I would say assessment and imaging in, in one go. Um, I think if, you know, traditionally these patients would, you know, for example, get admitted, they would wait 24 hours for a, a CT angiogram, they'd wait then 24 hours to have that looked at and reviewed, and then 24 hours for a decision to be made. And you've already lost three or four days in the patient's timeline. And I think if you can provide a service, which it's difficult and it, 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 you know, it does cost money, but where you can get imaging done quickly, essentially same day, if you can have an outpatient service with imaging done that day, it just speeds everything up. Once you've got the imaging, once you've assessed the patient, you can make decisions relatively quickly. Um, and, and in terms of sort of business case, you know, we were looking at that just before I left. Um, and we've looked at some reimbursement data and we've shown that your patients, each patient in the VALS clinic with chronic limb threatening ischemia, we save bed days. Um, and so, you know, you're saving patients being in hospital unnecessarily. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the way that really you've got to sell it. You have to sort of speculate to accumulate. It does require some investment, but the dividends are there. Yeah, it's all about patient flow. At the minute, every day is about patient flow for us. Yeah. And, and, and if you can keep patients out of hospital. Yeah. And we think of just how many patients just sit. A lot of our patients just sometimes just sit there waiting, just waiting. And you think they probably could, many of them could be at home. Some of them can't, but many no, of them could. No. And we might come on to the ones that can't in a, in a minute. On, on the subject of that one-stop clinic, essentially, that you're describing there about getting imaging, I wonder if there's a scope for maybe, John, for you to pick this up, uh, advice for free, to take some of the data, actually, that you've got already that you've described in terms of demonstrating outcomes being better for patients and taking that to the board or the trust hierarchy in terms of how you can therefore have daily slots available to you. And if they're not used by a certain time of the day, then they return to the radiology service from a CT angio point of view or cross-sectional imaging if you need it that day. I wonder if that's something you could explore. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think something like that already already exists. So I think we've we've negotiated, well, I think the clinic's negotiated um, two, C two dedicated CT slots per day um, that happen um, uh, kind of around lunchtime, so at the end of the clinic. Um, so patients that need a CT can have it that day. So, and, and yes, if they're not used, then they just go back to general radiology and, and they use the slots there. So uh, something like that, I think, already exists. Um, I was about to say, um, certainly in paediatric surgery, right where I work, um, a similar thing happens where there's emergency slots for certain things, um, including oncology. So um, it is a very good concept. I'm going to bring John in now because I think Andrew's... <laughs> <laughs> he's sweated enough. You need a drink? No, no, not really. He knows his stuff. He knows his stuff. Um, well, it's really a question for both of you, really. I, I'm, it focuses on what what do we think are is the optimal outcome here when we're assessing these sort of patients that are coming through what's the prime you know if you look at a study what's the primary outcome what 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 are the key outcomes for this patient group that we're trying to achieve here i, I agree with you that sometimes an amputation is actually in the best in the patient's best interest but in, in your eyes john you you start what what should what what are the outcomes that we should be achieving with these these patients so my personal opinion is I think your ideal outcome in a CLTI patient is alive with a functional foot um, so that you are you're alive and you are able to walk on your foot. I think amputation alone 
it, it's not it's an interesting outcome because essentially it's something that you do to a patient that doesn't happen naturally um so it's something that a patient has to it, it, it's a decision that's made um so just having amputation alone doesn't doesn't tell you everything that's that's necessarily happened with the patient so i think um your outcome uh, so that what the patient wants i think is to be able to um be out of pain to have their ulcer healed um, and to be able to walk and use their foot and go back to as normal a life as possible um, after their episode of CLTI. I think it's probably your ideal outcome. Andrew, agree or? Yeah, um, I, I, I would sort of add to that, that we need to, and we, we don't really have one at the moment, but develop some kind of quality of life measure um, to look at actually are we making a benefit to these patients in terms of quality of life? Um, so the, vas- the vascular quell doesn't quite do it then, is that, well, is that I what think you're saying? The vascular quell Because from... within that, there are some specific questions around... Well, um, that's interesting so you should say Around that. critical limb ischemia, aren't they? So there for, are. I think... Greg and Ceci, this is a quality of life, a disease-specific quality of life tool. Yeah, I think to be careful here because it's no, one no, of our no. outcome measures for our study. Yeah, well, you know, I think the vascular quality is good, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was for claudicants mainly was, and 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 part yeah, of our part of our research that we've done in Leicester, as part of the the team, was actually looking at vascular vascular scores for patients um, on assessment, and then at year follow at a year follow up, and a lot of the patients find that the questions just aren't relevant to them for critical limb ischemia um so i i mean i i think sort of out in terms of outcomes john's right i think major amputation is a bit blunt people use amputation free survival which again i think is very blunt i think it will be interesting to know do patients actually have a benefit in terms of their quality of life with what we do whether or not we do revascularize them and then six months time they're still in pain or they develop pain again whether or not actually patients have an amputation and do much better. Um, I think we don't really know that as well. And there could be a bit of a shift in what we do if we did know, because maybe it would challenge what we, what we think. John, you, you, you did mention when you went through the, the outcome, you went, they got pain-free, their ulcers healed. People can still have pain and have their ulcer, but keep, keep, the, keep this sort of, festering leg as it were because they don't want an amputation can't they which fits into this sort of um, quality of life disease specific quality of life doesn't it really yeah absolutely so so where john where you've moving on to you to, to, to your sort of interest where does mobility where does um return to home rather than return to or go to a, a you know a care facility where where does this sort of fit into our outcomes do you think i think it's very important to our patient cohort um and you know i think particularly in patients with chronic limb threatening and ischemia you know their their overall prognosis and the life expectancy um actually is relatively poor it's 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 worse than many cancers so um as a result you know you kind of your the the aims of your treatment um will change depending on the patient and i think it you know and i think this is one of the things i really enjoy about vascular surgery is that your decision making it's not a one-size-fits-all approach you know you take into account you know the anatomy the disease itself what the patient's current level of function is and what their what their life goals are 
Um, and so your your treatment options will be tailored to your patient. That's very difficult to research. And it's certainly something that I would be interested in exploring in the future. Um, but I think I, I think that's why patient reported outcomes and um, are, are really important um, uh, for this for this cohort of patients as they are for most cohorts of patients, really, in, in, in most pathologies. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think a goal orientated approach. You know, what does a patient want to achieve? Um, what what do they need to do? Um, uh, and and what 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 do you you know what what procedures or what treatment options are best to kind of either maintain their level of function or or improve their level of function to keep them independent at home um, uh, as long as possible. Because uh, this moves us nicely onto sort of frailty to doesn't it really which I know you've you've done quite a lot of work on do yeah. you, you every patient that comes in gets a frailty assessment that that's true isn't it you 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 look at frailty in these patients and yes I, we have had some slight changes since since covid um yeah. so so prior to covid everybody was getting a frailty assessment since covid um uh the, the, everything was streamlined slightly so um uh, that dropped off um, and we are looking to uh, reintroduce it shortly. Um, and uh, I mean, we're, we're currently involved in a, uh, a national quality improvement program looking at uh, improving the identifica- identification and management of frail patients within vascular surgery. Um, but yes, I think uh, many of our patients um, uh, come through the service and have a frailty score um, uh, using the clinical frailty scale um, uh, on admission. And, and does that does that influence the the, the decision making process? Um, it's tricky. It's tricky to really drill that down. Um, I think I think uh, I think frailty as a concept certainly does uh, influence decision making. Um, and I think you know I think that would happen whether we scored patients or not, um, mm. because there is a certain degree of uh, recognizing frail patients that all doctors do as part of their assessment you know when when they see a patient you know when they take their history and then examine a patient you know you're you're making an assessment of the patient all the time and, mm-hmm. and you know most of us can recognize the frailest patients um, and also most of us can recognize patients that aren't frail at all um, so uh, so yeah so I think frailty does influence the way that we manage patients but I also think it it influences what patients want to have to happen to them as well Um, so treatment decisions will um, naturally be different for frail and non-frail patients Um, currently um, the CFS score itself um, uh, doesn't directly influence management but again we are looking to we've got some interventions as part of our quality improvement work that will look to change slightly the way that the pathway works um, on the ward uh, for patients who are frail. I think it's it, it's fascinating. Cause you just, just briefly tell us what your, you did that systematic review, didn't you, that was in the annals of surgery. But briefly, what was the sort of the take-home message from from, from that? Um, so the take-home message, uh, I, I need to be a bit careful here, the, the take-home message is that um, frailty uh, is related to worse short-term and long-term outcomes um, in in vascular surgery patients. So, so uh, that review wasn't specifically in CLTI patients. It was a, it was looking at vascular surgery patients as a whole. But yeah, so frailty, as in many settings, is is related to worse short-term and long-term outcomes. But uh, yeah, I would heavily caveat that, which is that 
a lot of the patients who undergo intervention, a lot of vascular surgery patients that undergo intervention are frail. Um, and so just because a patient is frail doesn't mean that we would say no to doing a procedure. Um, but I think I think the take home really is that we because a lot of our patients are frail and because frailty is related to worse outcomes, then um, actually identifying it uh, is important. But more importantly, taking it into account uh, and perhaps managing these patients dif differently uh, to reduce their risk of poor outcome um, uh, is probably the approach that we should be taking. Now, so that leads us on to comprehensive geriatric assessment, does it? Is that yes? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, which, well, is, yeah a, which is a fascinating co concept in itself, really, isn't it? Of yes, absolutely. CGA, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think the other thing is that there's a lot of misconception about what frailty is, and certainly in the surgical literature, frailty and, and frailty assessment is often conflated with risk. Um, so uh, people think of uh, a frailty score is effectively a risk score um, but actually frailty itself is a health state uh, so it's you know going back to the football references for anyone that knows Ian Dowie um, uh, uh, it's, it's a loss of bounce back ability so it's you, you, patients who are frail aren't aren't able to restore homeostasis as quickly um, uh, and so with even minor stresses they have you know, a, a worse decline in function and then may not get back to their baseline or increased risk of mortality as well. So as a result, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember what the, what the original question was. About C, uh, CGA and the role of comprehensive geriatric assessment. Ian yes. Dowie got you a bit confused there. Ian Dowie got me very confused. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, so I, so I think comprehensive geriatric assessment, well, what it is, uh, is uh, essentially you have a, a multidisciplinary team um, assessing the patient completely holistically so not only taking an in-depth medical history but also taking a really in-depth social history understanding what what um, their current level of function is um, uh, and also looking ahead to potential problems on discharge um, so you're putting in interventions not only medical interventions but social interventions um, and uh, and improving the patient through optimizing the patient throughout the pathway uh, you know, deprescribing unnecessary medications, you know, adding in medications that may be necessary um, uh, and, and potentially altering your surgical strategy as well um, and your anaesthetic strategy. Um, so a comprehensive geriatric assessment is a systematic way of, of looking at the whole patient, flagging up potential issues and then and then the important bit is then doing something about them. This is actually not a novel concept. We've seen it with orthogeriatrics. We have seen increasing involvement of physicians in surgical specialties in general surgery. So on my ward at the moment, we have uh, not just geriatricians, but physicians who are part of the team and they yeah. deal with on admission risk. Well, sorry. So to your point about risk and frailty not being the same thing, they aren't, but they're directly proportional. Um, so there's a direct proportional relationship between frailty and risk. My point being that physicians being present in the management of either frail surgical patients or at-risk surgical patients, by definition, we've seen many times how that improves outcomes. So, you know, we, we call it different things in different specialties. You call it uh, CGA, others call it POPs, others call it orthogeriatrics. But yeah, fundamentally, it, it does improve outcomes and, and we've seen that many times.
No, I, I think I, I agree. I think, you know, they can, there's only so much they can do to optimise a patient preoperatively, but they can plan postoperatively, but they give, they sort of allow the patient to see what the outcome might be, I think, in, in these sort of clinics, these preoperative clinics. So I think the one area where we're struggling is the emergency patients that, that come in and, and the the post-op sort of reviews on the ward, which is, is again, is part of the pathway, isn't it? It's then why you can front load the front end and, and do that, the valves clinic really well. But if they need a bypass, you need to get them out of hospital. So you need to have that, that exit strategy from the point of view of optimising the pathway all the way through. Um, and that's certainly where the, the concepts of the multidisciplinary elderly physician role probably come, come, comes in. So, John, you, you've got a little bit longer there. What, what's to come? What, 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 what are the publications? What, what work should we be looking out for from you, from the team? Where's, where's this all going? I, I should have mentioned earlier, um, our main study that we're running with the George Davis Research Team uh, is uh, a prospective observational cohort study of patients with chronic limb threatening ischemia that present to um, the unit in Leicester um, called the Leg Ischemia Management Collaboration or LIM. Um, and so we've been recruiting since May 2019. Um, we had a bit of a COVID hiatus like most people. Um, and will be. Uh, uh, and so the, the study end has been extended to the end of the year. Um, so we're looking at recruiting a, you know, a moderately sized, you know, I think we've got uh, nearly 300 patients now that have been recruited and, uh, and, and looking at one year outcomes, but also following up patients um, out, to, um, out to two years for our telephone and 10 years for our electronic records. Um, uh, predominantly, it'll be a descriptive study um, looking at what happens to these patients. So there's an element of looking at again looking at the impact of the VALS clinic um, because obviously a lot of the patients that we've recruited have come through the VALS clinic um, uh, but as well as that we've got some sub-studies within within the main part of the study so uh, I'm I'm doing additional frailty assessments on patients um, that are recruited I've got a colleague who's doing MRI scan cardiac MRI scans uh, of patients recruited uh, and we're also um, looking at uh, biomarkers um, so that's the main study that we're working on um, and hopefully we'll have some frailty data to share in the summer because we're stopping that a bit earlier than the main study so I can write up my thesis. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so that, that's the main project that we're working on at the moment. Um, but I've also got interest in um, cognitive impairment uh, in vascular surgery patients. Uh, so again, like, like frailty, they're very high. Uh, prevalence of cognitive impairment among vascular surgery patients and, and has a similar impact on outcomes um, but also has slightly different impacts on, uh, uh, on on what we do with vascular surgery patients with cognitive impairment. Yeah that's, that gets into a real sort of uh, brings in the ethics as well doesn't it and the ethics around all of that sort of stuff that, that's a really interesting sort of different avenue. So we look forward to hearing some of that work at the Vascular Society meeting in November then fingers crossed yes yes i find your work fascinating you know it's something i'm interested in look forward to seeing some more of this and andrew just uh coming back to that thing you've now left uh presume your thesis is written then is that is that fair to fair to say yeah thesis is written submitted uh i got a a date today for my viva next month so yeah well done exciting That, that that's a great effort actually so congratulations on getting that or written 
in the time. Um, my, my last question before I hand over to the dynamic duo is around the effect of COVID in research. I, I know uh, Andrew was in my region as TPD, and, and I know that that did affect affect him. But just, just on, on reflection, we seem to be coming out, hopefully out of the back of this. What's your reflection on doing research during COVID? What, what, what's it been like? What are the challenges? What are the benefits? Have there been any benefits? John, do you want to start with that? Just... Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think the important thing is just as much as we shouldn't ignore COVID patients clinically, we shouldn't be ignoring um, research that isn't related to COVID. So I think it is important as much as possible that we continue to do um, research um, during as much as possible uh, during the pandemic. I mean, inevitably, we needed to stop and we needed to uh, for a period and, and we needed to adapt our study. So um, unfortunately, we've not been able to do face to face follow up. We've had to switch to telephone follow up. Um, recruiting patients who lack capacity has been more difficult during COVID just because families aren't allowed on the wards. So we, we have the option. We have the ability to recruit patients without capacity using a personal consultee. But if they're not physically in the hospital, um, it's very, very difficult to recruit patients. So, so there's been an impact of that as well. And, and I think you think in moving forward for people doing further, they sh- they, sh- they should, as part of their research protocols, anticipate perhaps and, and have additional ways that perhaps you can recruit during these times as part of your, you know, your ethics application. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I, no one, no one, and certainly when we wrote the protocol, you know, in 2018, we, we didn't anticipate, you know, being stopped for a global pandemic. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, like clinical services, research, research teams have had to adapt, uh, protocols have had to adapt. Um, uh, and I mean, there are ways of, of consenting patients who lack capacity. Um, uh, and I think, you know, being a bit more adaptive and um, certainly the bureaucracy and all the, all the forms that need to be filled out before patients can be recruited to studies is is a barrier um uh, you know if someone has to physically sign a form before you can start doing assessments on patients for research purposes then that's tricky so you know there must be electronic uh, ways of getting around that so andrew what are your uh, reflection of covid and research well i agree with everything that john has said it's been uh, i think i mean I, i'm lucky that it wasn't it didn't affect my research too much but there will be a lot of people out there who for whom it has you know added months on or it stopped a project in its tracks um so i i think the effects of it will be here for many months and years i think on my reflection on a personal level being out of program over the last sort of eight months over the second wave was almost it sounds odd a bit of guilt that you weren't there when your colleagues you know my wife is a is a doctor and she was in all the time and you know you were sort of guilty that somehow you were out doing research and you knew that you know you've done it for the right reason and your research will help people but i i found that actually probably the most difficult thing to to sort of to deal with is your colleagues are busy and, you know they're having a, a really tough time on the wards and you're doing research and you yeah i found that a bit but I'll, I'll blow your trumpet and you you did actually go back to work clinical work in the first phase i did i did so, so you know you yeah did. true i mean that, that's part yeah, that is true sure. but i i still i think we're you know as doctors we always feel part of a team don't we and when yeah. you you aren't part of that and you sort of want to be helping but you're not uh i, I yeah 
just that's just a personal thing. I just found no, that a bit more yeah, difficult no, to come to terms with. Look, guys, I think that's been brilliant. Uh, I think you know you're you you guys have led the way in 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 in, in Leicester with this. Uh, your research is leading the way. There's no doubt about that. Certainly, our hot clinic, our equivalent, was a was a god saver during COVID because it we we converted it from a, a leg clinic to a, an emergency clinic, which I suspect what you guys did as well. Yeah, and that was a savior, absolute savior for us during the the, the two COVID uh, lock, lockdown. So, um, yeah, long may it can. Hopefully, we won't have to do that again. But long may our clinics continue and we improve our outcomes for patients. So, from my point of view, John Andrew, fantastic. Many thanks for taking your time uh, to come and talk to us today. I felt we could have spoken for uh, hours, but maybe when we get back to the VS, well, I'll. I'll buy you both a beer and we can have a we can have a sit down in the chin work. How about that? Sounds very good. Thanks, Paddy. Absolutely fantastic, guys. So interesting hearing your journeys, hearing the work you've been doing. Um, I echo Paddy's sentiments in that um, while um, service delivery and getting through the acute phase of COVID and all doing our bits was important, we cannot forget the humongous backlog of patients that... Um, have not been done, have not received services because of this awful pandemic. And we cannot forget the fact that um, hopefully this pandemic is just for now and the future outcomes have to be thought about. So uh, very, very well done. And I've certainly learned a thing or two. What about you, Greg? Um, I think adults is more a little bit more your field than mine. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been really good listening to you both. I echo both Patty and Ceci. You both inspiring individuals in the same way you were inspired to do vascular surgery. I'm sure there'll be people listening to this podcast who think, you know, those guys are, are pretty inspiring. So hats off to you. Congratulations on, on what you continue to do. Andrew, good luck with the Viva whenever it comes. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to more tweets about Leeds United from John. And hopefully I look forward to reading your paper whenever it comes out. But from Setsi, Patty and I and the entire college behind us. We say thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the work you do and and good luck with with your future endeavors. We know that there'll be loads of people out there listening to this to have questions or comments for for the pair of them or for Patty. Um, you can get in touch with us by the usual channels through comms at rcsed.ac.uk or you can tweet these individuals. But until next time be kind to each other, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.